All right, well, we're there in Isaiah chapter 58. And Isaiah 58 kind of deals with, with a very specific subject. And verse 1 uh, is, has to do with it, but verse 1 is kind of its own separate thing. We're going to look at verse 1 quickly, and then we're going to move on to, to the rest of the chapter. In verse 1, you find the characteristics of biblical preaching. And I want you to notice this is one of the verses where God actually explains to us and teaches us how we ought to preach the Bible. And then notice what he says. He says, cry aloud. Now, the word cry in the Bible means to shout, okay? When you, when you have tears coming down your face, the Bible calls that, our King James Bible calls that weeping. But cry means to shout. And here he's saying, cry aloud. The word aloud means out loud, to do it in a loud way. He says, cry aloud, spare not. Notice what he says, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. One of the things that the Bible tells us to do is that in our preaching, we should try to be, and we ought to be dynamic, meaning you ought to just uh, use your voice as a tool to get people's attention. Sometimes people will ask you know, me or ask me about our style of preaching and why we yell sometimes or why we raise our voice. But the Bible says that it's our job to take a message that is very important. And, and you know, we ought not get up here and just show no emotion and just kind of be monotone and, and just, you know, the preacher that is just always talking and always, you know, the Bible says that we need to cry aloud. There are things that people need to hear. They need to understand. They are important. And sometimes we have to use our voice as a tool to get people's attention. He says, cry aloud. He says, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. And I, and I believe that one of the things he's saying here is to not be monotone, either in, you know, just always talking like this, or even just like the preacher who's always yelling, you know, just begins the service yelling. I mean, they're reading the text and all they're doing is yelling. I, I, think, I think God wants us to use our voice to sometimes emphasize certain things and then sometimes bring attention to things that are a little more subtle or more important by lowering our voice. Uh, from time to time, often I'll be in the middle of a yell and I'll just quiet down. And you say, what does that do? It gets a lot of heads to kind of stand up, you know, and you say, what do you say? You know, I miss that. And it's like, well, you haven't been paying attention, you know. So one of the characteristics of biblical preaching is to cry aloud, is to lift up uh, your voice like a trumpet. He's actually telling us about the practicalities of preaching. Another one, though, he says, uh, spare not. Here's what he means by that. Leave nothing out. It is our job to preach the word, to be instant, in season, out of season. And here's what you got to understand. Sometimes we prepare sermons, and sometimes we prepare messages, and sometimes we get things ready, and then we know that someone walks in, you know, maybe we weren't expecting them, or maybe we were expecting them, and we know that what we're going to say may be offensive to someone, or they may not agree with what we're saying. But the Bible says we ought not spare. We ought not leave anything out. At Verity Baptist Church, we do a lot of book studies. Like right now, we're studying the book of Isaiah. We're in Isaiah 58. Last week, we were in Isaiah 57. The week before that, we're in Isaiah 56. And there may be something in Isaiah 58 that may be offensive to one of you or multiple of you, but my job is not to leave that out. The Bible says I'm, not to, I'm to spare not. I'm to preach everything, whether it's popular, whether people like it. A preacher who preaches the Bible will spare not. So we are to cry aloud. We are to lift up the, our voice like a trumpet. We are to spare not. And then notice, biblical preaching is applicable preaching. Because he says, show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. You ought never walk out of a church service at Verity Baptist Church, scratching your head and, and saying to your, to your wife, I wonder what he meant. What was he trying to get at? Our preaching ought to be clear. The Bible says our job is to show 
people their transgression. The word transgression means sin. The Bible defines sin as the transgression of the law. And the house of Jacob, their sins. It is our job, it is my job as a preacher to tell you what the Bible says is sin. Because sometimes people come to church and they'll say, I didn't even know that was wrong. I didn't even know that was against scripture. I didn't even know the Bible talked about that. And my job is to spare not. My job is to cry aloud. My job is to preach the Bible, to show you your transgression, to show you your sins so that you can deal with your sins. That's what biblical preaching is all about. And that's what verse 1 deals with. Now in verse 2, we kind of shift gears and we change, change directions. In verses 2 through about verses 10 or 11, kind of deal with the same subject. And that's where I want to spend most of the time tonight. Look at verse 2. He says, yet they seek me daily. Yet they seek me daily. Now I want you to understand this. These were religious people. They seek me daily. They, they, you know, in our modern context of fundamentalism, these people read their Bible every day. These people were faithful to the church services. They were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. He says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They like to listen to preaching. They like to learn about God. They like to learn about the Bible. He says, they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. As a nation that, uh, that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinances of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. He says, they are asking what it is that, that I've ordained. They want to know what the Bible says. They want to know what the will of God is. They take delight. Notice the last part of verse 2. They take delight in approaching to God. They want to come close to God. They want religion. They want to know what are the rules. What are we supposed to do? What does the Bible say? What is the ordinances of God? But notice verse 3. Wherefore, now the word wherefore means for what reason? For what reason, wherefore, have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? They said, now wait a minute. They're seeking after God. They delight to know his ways. They ask of the ordinances of God. They delight in approaching to God. And he says, in the midst of a fast. Now, a fast is a time that you would take to not eat, to, to, to pray, and to ask God. In the midst of a fast, they are fasting, but they've got to ask this question. Why, he says, and thou seest not. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge. Here's what you got to understand, okay? Isaiah is dealing with a group of people who are religious, but not recognized by God. They are religious. They like preaching. They read the Bible. They want to know what the rules are. They want to know what the ordinances are. They want to know what the Bible says. They are partaking in religious acts. They are fasting, but yet they say, God doesn't hear us. God doesn't answer us. God doesn't see us. God doesn't take knowledge of us. And they're saying, why? For what reason will God not respect our religious acts? Because you've got to understand this. Just because someone is religious, does not mean that they are automatically recognized by God. Look at verse 3. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure. Now, the point of a fast is to abstain from, flesh, from pleasure. You're supposed to abstain from things that bring your flesh pleasure. And he says, yeah, you're fasting, but while you're fasting, you're finding other things to bring pleasure to your flesh in. And he says this, and exact 
all your labors. Now, the word exact means to demand or require of someone. Basically, these people, they're fasting in the middle of a fast, in the middle of time when they're supposed to be getting right with God and drawing close to God. In the middle of fact, they are exacting, they are demanding, they are requiring of someone their labors. They are causing someone to, to, to labor on their behalf and they are forcing them to do it. Look at verse number 6, just to get a little bit of the context of what he's talking about. Isaiah 58, look at verse number 6. He says, is not this the fast that I have chosen? Now, God is contrasting and he's saying, here's what I want you to do and here's what they weren't doing. Here's what you should have done to lose the bands of, the, of wickedness. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you got people in bands. He said, you got people tied up. He said, I'd rather you not fast and just let those people go and undo heavy burdens and to let the oppressed Go free. He said, you've got people you're oppressing. I'd rather you let them go free than to do your little fast that I'm supposed to be impressed with. And that you break every yoke. He said, you've got people under yoke. You've got people under oppression. You've got people under bondage. And here's what you've got to understand. Religion is relationship-centered. And when people are religious, they seek after God. They are interested in the things of God. They want to learn the Bible. They want to go to church. They want to get these, these ideas. But yet they are oppressing and they are uh, uh, putting people in bondage and they are mistreating people in their relationship. God says, I don't recognize that religion. You know, I was thinking about this and a perfect example of this would be uh, the South during the Civil War. You know, the South prides itself, even today, of being uh, a religious type. You know, everyone in the South is born again. Everybody's really, And you know, during the Civil War, the South was supposedly religious, the Bible Belt. Yet they had people enslaved. Yet they were mistreating people and they were abusing people. And, and you think God was okay with that? You think God looked down and he saw all these Southerners going out to church on Sunday while they were oppressing an entire group of people? And you think God was just proud of that and saying, oh, I accept that. These people are religious. I mean, here he's saying, you're oppressing people, you're exacting usury, and I'm supposed to be impressed with your fast. God says, I don't even recognize it. I don't even hear you. I don't even see you. He says, because religion is relationship-centered. And, you know, while I'm at it, I've, I've had a few people over the last several months ask me about the Civil War in the South. Let me go ahead and kind of deal with this for a second, because... Uh, even in our movement today of fundamentalism, you've got people running around saying, you know, I've heard people even make statements like, oh, the wrong, the wrong, so the wrong side has lost the, the Civil War. And today in Christianity, it's become this thing that like the South were like these heroes and the Confederate Army were some sort of godly people. Let me, let me tell you something. The, the problem with that argument is that there's no historical basis to prove that. People like to say things like this. They'll say, oh, the Civil War wasn't, won, wasn't fought over slavery. The Civil War was fought over uh, state rights. Okay, the only problem with that is that if you read the uh, articles of secession from the southern states, guess what they don't mention? State rights. Guess what every single one of them mentions? Slavery. And, and you know, making this statement, I knew that people weren't going to exactly believe me. So I actually went on and found some of the articles of secession from the southern states. And I want to just read a couple of them to you. I'm not going to read all of them, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just read you the opening. Here's the opening paragraph from the articles of secession from the state of Georgia. The people of Georgia, having dissolved their political connection with the government of the United States of America, present to their confederate and the world the causes which have led to the separation. For the last 10 years, we have had numerous and serious causes and complaints against our non-slaveholding confederate states with reference to the subject of African slavery. They have endeavored to weaken our security. 
to disturb our domestic peace and tranquility and persistently refuse to comply with their express constitutional obligations to us in reference to that property, referring to African slaves, and by the use of their power in the federal government have striven to deprive us of an equal enjoyment of the common territories of the republic. And here's what they're saying. Because the northern state said, if you come to vacation in the north, don't bring your slaves with you because we're going to set them free. They said, they, they, they said we're going to secede. But, but, but the, the Civil War is not fought over slavery. It's fought over you know, state rights is what people say. Here's the uh, articles of secession from the state of Mississippi. In the momentous step which our state has taken to dissolve its connection with the government of which we so long formed a part, it is but just that we should declare the prominent reasons which have induced our course. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor, talking about slaves, supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth, These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions and by an imperious law of nature, none, listen to what they say, none but the black race can bear to expose to the tropical sun. Here's what they're saying. We don't want to get out there and do the work. Let's make black people do it. These products have become necessities of the world and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. But the Civil War was not fought over slavery. It was fought over state rights. Let me tell you something. It was fought over the state's right to have slavery. The Civil War wasn't fought over slavery. It was fought over commerce and money. It was fought over the commerce that the slave trade brought. And here's what you got to understand. You know, the, the fact that people think like, Oh, no, you know, we, we, you know the, the, the South should have won. It's a ridiculous notion. Now, look, I'm not defending Abraham Lincoln. I'm not defending the Union. I know Abraham Lincoln did not fight the, the, the Civil War to, to free slaves. He fought the Civil War to keep the Union together. I understand that, but listen to me. Just because people say that they should have the right to own other people doesn't make it right. And here's the thing. They said, well, the Constitution gives us the right. But guess what? The Constitution is not the word of God. Just because the Constitution protected the right of slavery and just because the Constitution said that a slave was to be considered two-thirds of a person doesn't make it right. And just because the Constitution gave them that right doesn't make it right. And when people said, we're going to get rid of these laws and we're not going to allow this anymore, the southern states said, we're out of here if you're going to take away slavery. And that's why the war was fought. And here's the thing, I don't really care whether you like the North or you like the South, you like whatever, but it is insane for Christians to uphold the, the, these Confederate, you know, the old Confederate states and, and look at them as some sort of heroes and let their kids run around in Confederate uniforms and say, oh, you know, the Confederate. It's ridiculous. Those people were wicked. They were wanting to enslave people. And, and here's the thing. If, if you think in your mind, if you think in your mind, well, you know, I'd rather live in a country that had stronger state governments and a weaker federal government, even if it meant that an entire group of people were enslaved as a result, if you're okay to make that trade, you ought to check your heart. I mean, there's something wrong with someone who thinks that way. Because guess what? Jesus Christ doesn't care about the government of the United States of America. Jesus Christ doesn't care about how strong our federal government is or how weak our state governments are. But Jesus Christ does care about people. And Jesus said, it's not right to hold. And people try to say this. Well, there was slavery in the Bible. The slavery in the Bible is not anything close to the slavery that happened in America. Slavery in the Bible came about people who got themselves in debt, 
and couldn't pay their debts, and then they had to go into slavery for a certain amount of time. They were treated well. It was time-sensitive. And many of those people, after they were allowed to be set free, loved their master so much that they decided to just stay and be their servant for the rest of their life. That is, in the Bible, they didn't go to Africa and kidnap people from their homes and become property of other people. That's not what happened. And, and, you know, the people who are putting forth this idea, either, number one, you're just watching way too much YouTube or listening to Alex Jones. I don't know who you're listening to. And someone you admire and someone you look up to told you this and you just took it without even thinking about it. Or, number two, you just like it because it shocks people. And you just want to believe, shock, you know, listen, we ought not be against mainstream society just for the sake of being against mainstream society. Why don't I just believe these shocking statements just because it's going to get me a lot of views on YouTube? Or you, if you really just think that you'd rather live in a country that had you know, a bigger, a stronger state government, even if it meant for people to be enslaved, then you just need to check your heart because there's something wrong with that. And, and, people, and you know, some, some of you are thinking, well, I don't think you should be talking about this. You know, it's funny how everybody can talk about whatever they want. Everybody can say anything they want to my kids. I have to go home and explain to my kids, you know, all these things that they want to ask me about because so-and-so said this, Dad, and so-and-so said that, but I can't stand up and tell you what I think about it. Just because the Constitution protected it doesn't make right. And here's the point. Whether or not the South should have been allowed to be its own country, I don't really care. It's not the point that I'm making. The point that I'm making is this. As Christians, we ought not glorify people who thought it was okay to enslave human beings. And I'm not going to sit there and say, if, I, if the Civil War was fought today, I'd be a confederate. You're insane. If the, if the Civil War was going on today, I'd be in the Union. And maybe it's just because I'm brown. I don't know, but that's my position on it. Go back to Isaiah 58. Look at verse 4. They were doing religious things, but they were not doing it for good reasons. Look at verse 4. Behold, ye fast for, notice this word, for, strife and debate. He said, you're, you're fasting, but your motives are not because you actually want to get right with God. You fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Now, now listen, listen to me. You don't think there's people in our movement right now, they go on their little website and they listen to this sermon and they listen to that sermon and they listen to my preaching or they listen to Pastor Anderson, or Lacey and Pastor Romero, this and Pastor Burson, and they don't really care what the Bible says. They just want to have something to argue with someone about. They just want to get on Facebook and argue. I mean, is, is this what he's saying? Look at verse 4. Ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite. He says, you, you get close to God, not because you want to get close to God, because you want to have something to fight about. You want to have something to argue about. You want to have something to beat somebody's head over about and say, well, you're wrong about this. Now, listen, we started with the purpose of preaching is to show people their sin. But listen to me. There's a right way of doing it, and there's a bad, negative attitude where I'm going to make statements and I'm going to take positions just to fight, just to strike, just to debate, just to smite with the fist of wickedness. He says, you shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Here's what he's saying. If you want to fast like that, if you want to be religious like that, if you want to get close to God like that, he said, I'm not going to hear what you have to say. Look at verse 5. Is this such a fast that I've chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? He said, is this what I asked you to do? He said, did I ask you to get close to me so you can beat people up with your knowledge? Did I ask you to get close with me so you can fight with people and debate with people and smite people? He said, is this the fast that I've chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? 
Is it to blow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? Look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? He said, here's what I'd like you to do to lose the bands of wickedness. Here's what I'd like you to do to undo the heavy burdens. Here's what I'd like you to do to let the oppressed go free. Here's what I'd like you to do that ye break every yoke. Here's what I'd like you to do. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? And that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. Here's what I'd like you to do. Find a poor person and bring them to your house. Find someone who's hungry and give them food. When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him. That thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Here's here's what he's saying. Here's what he's trying to explain. Here's the whole point. Religion and religious acts are centered on our relationships and how we deal with one another. And you can be super religious, but if you are oppressing people, if you are fighting with people, if you are mad at people, if you're an angry person, God says, I don't want anything to do with you. Because your motives are wrong. Because you just want to you just want to learn something so you can fight with someone about it. So you can argue with someone about it. Let me give you some New Testament passages. James chapter two. Pastor appreciation day's over. We're we're back to, to normal. James chapter two, look at verse fifteen. James chapter two. James chapter two. 2 and verse 15, if you start from the end and going backwards, you go past Revelation, past Jude, past 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, past 1st, 2nd Peter, you find the book of James. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, look at verse 15. James 2, 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace and be, and be warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? He said, if you, if you see your brother in need, you, you see them naked and destitute of daily food. They are naked and they are starving. And you walk up to them and you say, hey, I hope you get warm. And I hope you get a full tummy there. But you don't do anything to help them. He said, does, does that profit anybody? You're there in James chapter 2. Go back to James chapter 1. Look at verse, verse 27. James chapter 1, verse 27. James 1, 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God. See, there's nothing wrong with religion. But pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. See, true religion is relationship-centered. And God says, if you're going to have pure religion, here's how you do it. You visit the fatherless. You visit the widow. You keep yourself unspotted from the world. You work on your heart before God, your relationship with God, and your relationship with others. And here's the thing. You find this all throughout the Bible. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Let me give you another example. 1 John chapter 4. You're there in James. Just keep going backwards past 1 and 2 Peter, past 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Look at verse 20. And by the way, didn't, didn't the Declaration of Independence say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal? I mean, isn't that, isn't that where we started? The Constitution came after the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence was the secession article that took us out of Europe, out of England. And we started this country, supposedly, with the idea that men should be free. So it's wrong even by American standards, and it's definitely wrong by biblical standards. 1 John chapter 4, look at verse 20. If a man say, I love God, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If a man say, I love God, and hated his brother, he is a liar. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? 
And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So you got to understand this. The Bible teaches that our religion is relationship-centered. Go to Matthew chapter number 9. Matthew chapter number 9. All throughout the Bible, you find these ideas where God tells us how we ought to treat one another. I'm not going to take you to the passages, but God tells us that we ought to have peace one with another. We ought to love one another. We ought to be kindly affectionate one to the other. We ought to have the same mind. We ought to edify one another, admonish one another, serve one another, bear one another, be kind to one another, pray for one another, minister to one another. See, real religion is not about how much I know. And I'm not de-emphasizing knowledge. You ought to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. But it's not about getting knowledge so that we can fight with people and argue with people and find the little thing that you're wrong about and just, you know, blast you on Facebook. The point is about how we treat each other. Matthew chapter 9, look at verse 10. And I know preaching this, people say to, you know, oh, you're, you sound like a liberal. I sound, you know, I, it's funny how I'm showing you everything from the Bible. This is what God taught. Matthew chapter 9, look at verse 10. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. Notice what the Bible says. And it came to pass, as Jesus was at meat in the, in the house, at meat means he was sitting there eating in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Publicans and sinners were bad people. They, they, were, they were not the crowd you wanted to hang out with. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold me, not a physician, but they that are sick. He said, But go ye and learn what this meaneth. And, and you ought to underline this phrase. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's what he's saying. I'm not as interested in your sacrifice as I'm interested in your mercy. See, I'm not as interested in your tithe, Pharisees, as I'm interested in the weightier matters of the law. I'm not as interested in how you keep the rules. Now listen, he's not saying it's wrong to keep the rules. But listen to me, even Jesus taught that sometimes it's okay to break the rules if it's done for a relationship. You say, what are you talking about? Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 1. You're there in Matthew 9, just flip a few pages over. Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 1. Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 1. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. And his disciples were in hunger, and he began to pluck the ears of corn and eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. Your disciples are not keeping the rules. They're not keeping the religion. Look at verse 3. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was in hunger and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Remember, we were talking about this morning. The things that were sacrificed were given to the priests. The priests were supposed to eat it. Only the priests were supposed to eat it. David shows up when he's running away from Saul with his men. They're hungry. They're, they're starving. And the priest gives them food, which was not lawful for them to eat. And, God, and Jesus says, you know, that's okay. Look at verse 14. How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this meaneth, does this sound familiar? I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Ye would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath day. Here's what the Pharisees were saying. If there was a starving man, I'd let them starve before I broke the Sabbath. And God says, you're an idiot. God says, I'm not impressed with your religion. I'm not impressed with your rule keeping. I'm not impressed with how religious you are because you know what? 
Religion is relationship-centered. And God is more impressed with how we treat people. And God is more impressed with, how, with showing mercy and not sacrifice. Go back to Isaiah 58, look at verse 8. Isaiah 58, look at verse 8. Isaiah 58, verse 8. Now, notice what he says. And, the, and, and keep your finger in Matthew. If you haven't turned there, you might have turned already. But we're going to go back to Matthew in a second. But look at Isaiah 58. Look at verse 8. Then, when, after you lose the bands, after you set the oppressed free, after you deal with right relationships and you get yourself right with God, then shall thy light break forth as the morning. And thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Look at verse 10. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul. He said, if you help people, and love people, and minister to people, then shall thy light, I want you to make note of that, that phrase, thy light rise in obscurity. He said in verse 8, then shall thy light break forth as the morning. In verse 10 he says, thy light shall rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. Go, go back to Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 14. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 14. He, thought, he says, when you get your relationships right, he said, then your light will shine forth. He said, your light shall break forth as the morning. He said, your, your light will rise in obscurity. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, notice what Jesus said. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on, the hill can, uh, on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men. How? How do I do that? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, we, we make fun of the liberals and, and preach against lifestyle evangelism, and, I, and I'm not for lifestyle evangelism in the sense of that's our evangelism. I'm for going into the highways and hedges and compelling them to come in. I'm going, for going house to house, door to door, like Jesus taught. But listen to me. It's not about doing aggressive evangelism and forgetting about the way we live our lives. We ought to live right and go out sowing. We ought to live properly and let our light so shine before men. And I'm not talking about standing up against false preaching and false prophets and letting people know what the Bible says. But listen to me, this idea that I'm going to attack my fellow brethren and I'm going to attack my brother in Christ because we don't see eye to eye on some small doctrine and I'm not minimizing doctrine, but this idea that it is godly to be angry, that it is godly to fight with people, that all I do is learn the Bible so I can beat somebody over the head with it, this is exactly why the world looks at us and says, you're a joke. Because your light shines by how? You treat people. That's how we build. That's how we edify. That's how we admonish. See, not everybody that walks through these doors and doesn't agree with everything that we believe do we have to sit there and argue with and fight with and get mad about. Now, there are times to fight. There are times to argue. When, when people walk in here and, they're, and, they're, and they are promoting false doctrine and they are trying to bring in false doctrine and they're trying to put us against each other, then we need to stand up against those people. But if somebody is just confused about religion, guess what? Show some grace. Show some mercy. Show some love. Give them time. Admonish them. Exhort them. Encourage them. Befriend them. And that might actually do more than strife and debates and arguments. Go back to Isaiah 58. Look at verse 12. Isaiah 58. Look at verse number 12. And they that shall be of thee shall build 
the old waste places. And thou shalt rise up the foundations of many generations. And thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. See, you've got to decide what kind of person you want to be, and we've got to decide what kind of ministry Verity Baptist Church wants to be. I'm not saying we ought not fight. We need to fight. I'm not saying we ought not stand up for truth. We need to stand up for truth. I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up against false doctrine and false religion and false prophets. We should do those things. But my job and my goal is not to be a church where everything is just tearing everyone down. I actually, my goal is to build people up, to repair, to restore, to edify to invest in people, to love people, to befriend people, to try to bring. My goal when I stand up to preach is not to just, you know, get on you and make you feel horrible. My goal is to convince you. My goal is for you to walk in and say, I didn't used to believe that, but I, I saw that in the Bible, and I am. I'm going to do that. I'm going to grow in grace. I'm going to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because I love God. Not because I want to get on Facebook and argue with somebody and fight with somebody and make a video on YouTube. So you've got to ask yourself this question. Do you want to be the type of person? Do you want to leave the type of home and the type of ministry where they say, you know, over there, they repair people. They restore people. They invest in people. They love people. Because God is not impressed with our religion. And God is not impressed with how many times you go out soul winning and how many services you go to and how many times you do this and how much money you put in the offering plate. All these things are good. These things ought you to have done, but not to have left the other undone. Religion, pure religion, is relationship-centered. And we ought to search our hearts and we ought to figure out how is our relationship with our brother? How is our relationship with those around us? How is our, our relationship with people? 